Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. Imagine a future where Canada was not doing particularly well. And I am sorry, Canadian listeners, for picking on you for this hypothetical that I want to use to set up the episode. Canada is a lovely country. I've enjoyed myself when I've been there a great deal. Um, but just go with it. Imagine a hypothetical future where Canada was not doing well at all, where it had endured over 50 years of economic deprivation and downturn, failure, depression, and in this scenario, Canada's economy and quality of life are quickly being surpassed by the US, the EU, China, Korea, Japan, Australia, Brazil, even Russia. Relative to the rest of the world, Canada is not well off. So to save itself, Canada, in this hypothetical future situation, decides to bet everything on a mission to Mars. In this future, a few countries have already landed on Mars. The U.S. and China are there, as is the EU. But Canada wants to land on a strategic and resource-rich part of Mars that is as yet unclaimed. As Canada is trying to do this, the U.S. does everything in its power to financially frustrate the mission. The United States of America does not want Canada on Mars. Neither does China. Neither does the EU. No one does. So, the U.S. It uses its international clout to stymie and frustrate its northern neighbor. Canada is not able to gather international investment for this venture. So Canada raises the money domestically. It's hard. It takes up a whole lot of the country's capital, but they are able to pull it off. They launch the mission, and the intrepid Canadians in their spacecraft, they experience a punishing and difficult voyage from Earth to the Red Planet. When they get there, the environment that they encounter is hostile. The resources that they came for are less abundant than they thought they would be. And the part of Mars they landed on which is strategically important, is far more difficult to navigate and negotiate than they thought it would be. Canadian settlers in this alien environment, they die in numbers. It's hard going, but they press on. They try to resupply the colony. But eventually Canada's Martian colony is attacked by, let's say, Chinese forces that have already landed on the planet, and they don't want the competition. And that Chinese Martian force is able to oust the Canadian Martian force. And at the end of it all, Canada is broke, humiliated, and desperate. It has no real choice but to dissolve its government and merge with the United States. What I just described sounds like ridiculous science fiction. And I happen to like ridiculous science fiction. But something analogous to that actually did happen at the end of the 1600s. When you had a country venturing into hostile alien territory in an attempt to become a world power, only to be frustrated by its southern neighbor. In the late 1600s, something very similar to that scenario happened to Scotland. Scotland didn't try to go to Mars, obviously, but in its last days of real political independence, 
it did attempt to set up an international empire in the jungles of what we now call Panama. The plan, the Darien scheme as it's now known, failed and led to Scotland merging with England to form what we now call the UK. At the end of the 1600s, Scotland was watching the rest of Europe pass it by when it came to international trade, colonization, and general world exploitation type activities. England, Spain, the Netherlands, they were all doing quite well in these departments, but Scotland was getting passed over. If it wanted to compete with these other powers on a global scale, then it had to get a piece of the action when it came to international trade and colonization. It had to find some other little chunk of the globe and take it over. The part of the world that Scotland set out to acquire is still strategically and commercially important today. Scotland set its sights on the isthmus that connects North and South America and separated the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans with a scant 60 miles. Panama, which some Scots back then called the Isthmus of Darien. The idea was a simple one. Ships, instead of going all the way around South America and enduring some of the most intense weather in the world as they rounded Tierra del Fuego, would instead stop at Panama, or Darien, offload goods there, and then bring them overland to the other coast, again less than a 100 miles away, and then load them onto another ship. Scotland would control a choke point that would allow international shipping to skip a continent's worth of commuting. William Patterson, who was a banker who proposed this plan and was a major advocate for it, called Panama, quote, the door to the seas and the key to the universe, unquote. Which I think is overselling it a bit, but still, he knew how important that small stretch of land could be. Obviously, this project was going to be expensive, so Scotland turned to international investment to raise funds for the venture. Uh, bankers and backers sought out capital on the European continent, but a curious thing happened. At this point, the English monarch, William II, was also the head of state of Scotland, as well as England. Though Scotland has a parliament, England has a parliament, they are politically separate, they have the same head of state, monarchy is weird, it's complicated. But William II, as well as the other powers that were in England, they didn't want to piss off Spain and the Netherlands and other pre-existing world powers. These countries were dividing up the known world and the unknown world between themselves, and England didn't want to be in a position where it was antagonizing the other European powers by allowing for a new player on the scene. So William II, the Scottish and English head of state, didn't exactly give his support for this venture, and the English they frustrated Scottish investment attempts at every opportunity, to the point where Scottish financiers, they actually had to refund money to various backers that they'd managed to find in Germany. England figured that if the continental money wasn't there, if Scotland couldn't get any loans or investment in this venture, then there wouldn't be a Scottish colony. That didn't stop Scotland, though. There was another obvious source of investment for this venture, and that was Scotland itself. 
England's northern neighbor proceeded to gather funds from its own citizenry for the project. And the impression that I've gotten is that investing in the Darien scheme was, for many Scots, an act of nationalism. About a fifth of Scotland's wealth ended getting sunk into this adventure, and this is just my opinion, but you don't get that level of investment because people think something is going to give them merely a good return. You only get that level of commitment and sacrifice from a population when you tap into a sense of national identity and national pride and ambition. And the people who invested in this, by the way, they came from all walks of life. We're talking about aristocrats, farmers, crafters, everyone. The people who invested in this were, I think, not just hoping that they would see an eventual return on their money. They were also hoping to see the rise of Scotland, their homeland, as an international power. Five ships set out from Scotland to make their way to Panama. And from the very beginning of their journey, the Scots faced unique challenges. For instance, the Scots wanted to avoid the English, to avoid being seen by this southern power that was frustrating their colonization attempts. So the colonists huddled below decks on their ships while they were still in British waters. The idea being that if any English ship saw them, they would see what looked like merchant vessels with a few crewmen on the deck. Not a fleet of five ships carrying approximately 1,200 colonists to start a Scottish empire on the other side of the world. Reportedly, the conditions below decks, while they were still in British waters avoiding the English, were miserable. When they arrived in Panama, the Scots christened a new colony Caledonia and set up a fort near a small bay and various huts surrounding it. Almost immediately, the colony ran into trouble because it lacked a source of fresh water and also a source of food. The Darien settlers had not planned on planting crops, but instead they thought that they could live off the land and trade with the local Native Americans for food and other goods that they might need. But when planning the expedition and loading up on trade goods that they would use for, well, trade, the Scots made some large miscalculations. Many of the goods that they bought for trade with the natives were wool and heavy wool clothing and fabric. It's one of the last things that you need in the humid jungles of Central America. And the Native Americans were not impressed with the other trinkets that the Scots attempted to trade them for food. The Scots had counted on trade relations with the people who already lived in Panama. Those trade relations did not materialize. If the settlers wanted to eat, the only real option was to hunt the large turtles native to the area, which certainly is a source of calories, though if you only eat one food source, that is an invitation for malnutrition. Malaria set in, food spoiled in the tropical environment, and the Caledonians began to weaken and die. What's worse, the English and Dutch ships refused to resupply the colony. England had frustrated Scotland's efforts to build funds to raise a colony in the first place, and now it was doing its best to choke that colony when Scotland had used Scottish funds. In this new Scottish colony, this would-be seed for an international empire, the mortality rate climbed. This is a population that starts at about 1,200, 
and the mortality rate climbs to about 10 people a day. Reportedly, drunkenness spread. Despairing colonists, seeing all of the death and suffering around them, resorted to consuming in excess the five ships' supply of alcohol in what I imagine was a feeble attempt to stave off existential despair. Eventually, the local Indians did take pity on the starving, dying colonists, and they did start to provide them with food, but it was too little too late. Of the 1,200 people that had set off for the New World, only 300 remained. Among those survivors was William Patterson, the banker who'd called Panama the door of the seas and the key to the universe. He survived. His wife and child did not. The 300-some settlers abandoned the colony and set out for New York and eventually back to Scotland. But that was not the end. Scotland was hoping to start a colony, and they were not going to send a mere five ships. That was just the initial settlement. Other vessels were on their way. In 1699, two more ships arrived in Panama. They expected to find people, life, and activity Instead, they found only dilapidated huts, the remains of the fort, and several graves. One of the ships, strangely, was destroyed by an accidental fire, and only one of these Scottish vessels, sent to resupply Caledonia, ended up leaving the ghostly colony. And later in 1699, another 1,000 colonists showed up in Panama. And remember, it takes a while for news to spread, so a lot of folks back home in Scotland don't necessarily know how badly things are going. Scotland was pouring money into this, and now it's sending ships and supplies and people. And these people are arriving in what they think is the beginning of Scotland's international empire. They are arriving in what they think will be a bustling Scottish town in the New World. Instead of finding that bustling Scottish town. They find a ruin. And it's their job suddenly, when they arrive, to try to bring that ruin back to life if they want to stay there. And again, these new colonists, these new thousand humans, they are laboring in the same conditions that already had killed hundreds of their countrymen. And as the Scots are trying to bring Caledonia back to life, it isn't the famine, it isn't malaria that ousts them. It was the Spanish. At the time, the Spanish were still a force to be reckoned with, and they, of course, had been in the New World longer than anyone else. And you recall that England didn't want to support the Darien scheme because, in part, it didn't want to damage relations with Spain, who saw a good part of Central America as theirs. The Scots knew that a Spanish attack would probably come at some point, and they did have ships equipped with several cannons. They had guns. They had built a fort. It was their hope that Scotland, a would-be world power, could ward off Spain, an existing world power, from their new colony. The Spanish did finally arrive, and when they did, they besieged the small, starving, malnourished, ruined colony for a month before the Scots finally surrendered. Ousted by Spanish might, Scotland left a new world behind, never to return. The failure of the Darien scheme had cost Scotland dearly in wealth and lives, and the head of Scotland at the time was again the English monarch, William II. And again, Scotland, it has its own parliament, it's technically an independent country, 
But its head of state had obviously favored English interest over Scottish. And England had tried to frustrate Scottish ambitions internationally. William II had been overseeing two different countries that were working counter to one another. What's more, Scotland has international ambitions. It also now has a great deal of debt and economic problems. And in the early 1700s, people in Scotland and people in England talked about a way to solve all these problems. A way to prevent the monarch's interest from favoring one country over the other. A way for England to keep Scotland in its orbit and control what its northern neighbor was doing. A way for Scotland to finally be a part of an internationally powerful empire, and that was full-on political union. In 1707, Scotland, which wanted badly to be an international power, simply joined with a pre-existing international power. England extended a certain amount of economic assistance to Scotland during the unification process, and ever since then, the two countries have existed beneath the same flag. It's easy to look at the Darien scheme and think of it as something doomed to failure. A modern person can look at it and make fun of the Scots. They can think, well, of course a jungle settlement is doomed to all kinds of disaster. Of course they got malaria. Of course it was going to spiral out of control. It's kind of like trying to set up a colony on Mars. Of course people are going to die. Of course it's going to go badly. But I think that view is a bit uncharitable. After all, the plan looked great on paper. The idea of international trade skipping an entire continent, not having to go around South America at all. You look at a map, you take a look at Panama, and you don't have to be a genius to figure out how that's the choke point. That that is where the Atlantic connects to the Pacific. That it really is, in some ways, the door of the seas, though I think calling it the key to the universe, again, overselling it. And obviously that's what we have now with the Panama Canal. That was an engineering project that was a bit more ambitious than Scotland's overland route, but it was the same general principle. Had England allowed for more investment in the Darien colony? Had England allowed for resupply of the colony? Had there not been frustrations of Scottish ambitions by its southern neighbor, we might be looking at a somewhat different map of Europe and maybe a somewhat different map of Central America today. It's entirely possible that Scotland would have remained politically independent and never had to have joined with England. And it's entirely possible that Panama and Central America might look somewhat culturally different now had that colony flourished. And I think it's an open question about whether it could have had it not been choked. I'm sure that this is something that plenty of Scottish nationalists have thought about again and again and again, and poured over, and regretted. Nothing remains of Caledonia today. It's in an isolated part of Panama that on some maps is labeled as Punta Sconces, or Scottish Point. And that name is all that's left of an international empire that vanished in an unforgiving jungle hundreds of years ago. Speaking of Scotland, I have an error correction. Um, a while ago, in a previous podcast, I was talking about Shakespearean characters who had killed themselves. I mentioned Macbeth. That is wrong. Macbeth did not kill himself. 
Macduff killed Macbeth. Um, lots of other Shakespeare characters have killed themselves. Romeo, Juliet, you know, Brutus, Cassius, Othello. I regret the error, and I shall attempt to keep all of the facts on this podcast, even my weird asides and cultural references, as accurate as possible. Uh, speaking of England, uh, I'm doing a live event on March 22nd in Portland, Oregon, at the historic Clinton Street Theater. Uh, there's going to be a showing of one of the best comedies ever, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and I'm going to be there doing a 15-minute talk before the movie about actual, for-real Arthurian legend. And then we can all watch a movie that we all watched probably a bajillion times in high school and college about fake, silly Arthurian legend. So if you're in Portland and you want to see me live on stage talking to you, come out for that. This is an independent, ad-free podcast. We are supported by our Patreon subscribers. Uh, go to interestingtimespodcast.com, click on Support IT on Patreon, sign up for a monthly donation. That would be awesome. Uh, we are on iTunes. Give us a review. Give us a rating. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, joestreckert.tumblr.com, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert, all over social media. Be our social media friend. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye.